Bible reading is from Isaiah 35, verses 1 to 10, found on page 720 of the Church Bibles. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow, and a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And now we have our gospel reading. Matthew 11, verses 2 to 11, found on page 976 of the Church Bibles. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. 
Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Fred. That was lovely. Beautifully read. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we let those words about the desert sink in, you know that some of us are parched, some of us are kind of broken up like the floor of the desert. And we ask you, Lord, that you will melt our hearts, you will come to us, you will turn a dry place into a place of abundance and life and wholeness. We ask you that you will speak to us from your word this morning. Thank you for what we've already heard in just listening to it. But Lord, would you help me as I add a few words to the written word. Amen. Amen. Could I have the PowerPoint up? Great. So the whole theme of Advent that we've been enjoying over the last few weeks is this, this wait, this long wait for the promised Messiah. The last verse, or last, one of the last verses of the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible, which is written before Jesus, the sometimes called the Jewish Bible, is this verse. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. I, Elijah had been a, a, a powerful prophet much earlier in Israel's history, and, and to say that that hero would be in some way coming back again was a great um, thing that meant the people of Israel were longing and looking for a Messiah and this person would be a kind of also associated with that coming of the Messiah. Then after the end of the Old Testament, there were four centuries of silence. The wait kind of intensified. In that period... Uh, there were some major things that happened and all of those looking back had to happen for the Messiah to come. One of those was the influence of Greece. If anyone's been on holiday to the Mediterranean or have seen amazing temples and, and other archaeological things that, that spread out from the Greek Empire centred in Athens right across the whole Mediterranean basin. With that came the influence of the Greek language itself and that became a kind of lingua franca, a bit like English is now in many countries, a way of getting by even if it wasn't your mother tongue. Um, and then also there was the, in Israel itself, there was a, a, an intense longing for, the, uh, for independence because they were uh, occupied by some uh, Greek-influenced forces and also for the Messiah to come, that some of the uh, words of the prophets from in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah and others, would come to pass. So there was that intense hope there. And in the time of those four centuries, there were uprisings in Israel in which uh, uh, Greek forces were kicked out. Um, Israel had some independence, but there was still no Messiah. And then at the end of that period, the Romans 
came, they kind of modelled themselves on the Greeks, what the Greeks had done very intellectually and sort of artily, the Romans did, with power and organisation and engineering. They were the kind of hard men of, if you like, or the hard people of of that era. And and along with that, they brought kind of Greek-style culture, but in a very Roman way. And they occupied Israel, as as you'll probably know, and brought with them... uh, Roads, amazing roads that meant it was easy to get around the whole of the Roman Empire from UK in the north right down to Morocco in the southwest to Israel in the east. A huge, huge empire. And along with that, a particularly barbaric form of execution known as crucifixion. So all of that kind of happened while Nothing seemed to be coming from the mouth of God. There were no more books being written for the Bible. They just had the Old Testament. And then Jesus came. Uh, And before Jesus, there was his cousin, who was called John the Baptist, who lived in the desert. And he was falsely imprisoned. And that's the context in which that second reading comes. John... um, sent this message to Jesus from prison to say, are you the one that was to come or should we expect someone else? Which really expressed a lot of doubt because earlier John had said, behold the Lamb of God about Jesus. So obviously prison wasn't easy and eventually John was executed. So maybe John was struggling in his faith in Jesus. Jesus came up with one of his most classic um, comments. He didn't reply directly to that. He didn't say, no, I'm Jesus, you stupid oaf. (laughs) You know I'm the Lamb of God. Just carry on. He didn't say that. Or he he didn't say, I know how you're feeling, John. It must be so hard in prison. Please accept my sincere feelings. Instead, Jesus was quite hard in a way and quite oblique and just replied to, to John in terms of, what was actually happening. Yes, John, this is the real deal. The things that you were expecting that would come from me are coming. It, it is happening. Jesus said, um, the blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those have, who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And then he used that opportunity to talk to the crowd and say, you know, who who is John the Baptist? Um, Was he a man in fine clothes? No, etc., etc. He lived in the desert in a place that most uh, Jewish people wouldn't really live in. They would go there occasionally, but it was a very dry and dusty place. But Jesus said that John was a prophet, a messenger that he was, would be sent ahead of him. And that quote there, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you is a quote also from the penultimate book of the uh, Old Testament, I think. <laughs> it's certainly from the Old Testament from before Jesus' uh, coming. And then there's this verse here that wasn't actually in the uh, reading that we uh, had. And if you're willing to accept it... He is the Elijah who was to come. And that's linking back to that verse that I showed you earlier. And then the passage from Isaiah, 
Isaiah had a long wait too. He lived about 600 and something BC, so 600 years before Jesus. His time was a very different one. It was at the end of a long period where there was, Israel was independent, had its own kingdom, um, had been very successful actually militarily at some points and in trading and, and had an empire. But it was in a period of decline because the, uh, the kings had become very corrupt. Um, they turned away from God in their hearts and things were just getting worse. Occasionally a good king would come along and things would be a bit better for a while, but then there would be another trail of bad kings. And, and Isaiah, was his book is punctuated with visions of the coming Messiah, which would be 600 years later, mixed in with terrible forebodings about what would happen to the country of Israel. Um, and at that point, uh, at the end of uh, Isaiah's life, the um, Babylonian Empire did come in and take away most of the population in exile to Babylon, which was a, a national disaster. So in Isaiah, there were so many foretastes of Jesus coming, some of which we've covered in previous, um, uh, on previous Sundays in Advent, like this one in Isaiah chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Later in Isaiah 11, it, uh, that Pad spoke on last week, uh, uh, Jesus was spoken of in the terms of being in David's line. A shoot will spring up from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And then when we get into Isaiah 53, there's this amazing couple of chapters relating to Jesus' death. And they really do reflect the gospel accounts, but written 600 years earlier. And they're deeply intimate. Um, so it, in many ways, the experience of John and of um, Isaiah was one of a desert. Um, and, and Isaiah's talking about a desert in the passage here. Talking about a dry, inhospitable, fruitless place with wild animals, a place that's hard to travel through because the Judean desert was very hilly as well. John the Baptist actually made it his home. Jesus was spent 40 days being tempted there and in those journeys into exile, both in Egypt and Babylon, the Jews had had to travel across the desert and back on their way back from Egypt, taking over 40 years to make a journey that should have only been a few weeks. This is a little bit, this is a view of what um, the Judean desert looks like from the air. And it looks the most amazing place, just a kind of khaki colour with um, the odd bush, but loads and loads of um, deep valleys and um, very, very dry. But Isaiah talks of it as being able to come into uh, blossom and into fruitfulness, that there would be water that there would be springs, things that a traveller would need on their way, things to cheer them in terms of the flowering and the fruit, but also of um, the water that they would need to sustain themselves as they cross the desert. 
Um, this is a not terribly clear picture, but it's of a place called En Gedi in Israel, which I'd love to visit. It's a, a kind of place where the, there are uh, just a few waterfalls and springs, and it gives a little bit of this sort of picture of how the Jewish um, idea of the Isaiah's idea of of the fruitful desert would would pan out, and the crocuses, I believe during the rainy season, actually pop out of the ground that's so dry and dusty like that. Um, And you sometimes get this sort of flowering happening in the desert when there's rain, but it's very rare. And, of course, John lived on wild honey, so there there was fruitfulness in the desert. But I think God is promising that in a much bigger way in Jesus. And Isaiah talked about repaired people, people with feeble knee, feeble hearts and hands, with knees that give way, fearful hearts, um, that the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame would leap like deer, and the mute tongue shout for joy. And that's, that's what we see there in that, in that chapter 11 of Matthew, that that's what was happening in Jesus' time. And at the end of that, um, this description of a way, a highway, the way of holiness, it will be for those who walk on that way. The verses in Isaiah talk about get onto that way, and I sort of think of it as being a bit like a railway line with an embankment and cuttings, where the, you know, there's that other verse in Isaiah chapter 40 which says, every valley will be um, filled in and every mountain will be made low. And that a much easier path would be made by raising up the low bits and scraping out the the, the pointy bits and that there would be an easier path. Um, John Bunyan in the 1600s in the UK wrote this book called uh, Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't read it, it's a really good book. It's quite hard to read because of the language of the 1600s. Um, but he details there a kind of allegory of how the Christian life evolves, starting from the um, bottom left, the city of destruction, and going up through various difficulties and trials and tribulations, like the hill of difficulty and the slough or um, kind of um, marsh of despond and gloom. And various things attacking him, like the devil attacking him, who's called Apollyon in the story. And eventually getting to the celestial city in the top right. Uh, And if you're interested, it's a really good read. You can find it on PDFs all over the internet. Um, And I've got a copy on the bookstall. That verse um, there talks... um, Uh, at the end of Isaiah about the redeemed being on this way and I just thought it might be worth saying a little bit about what redeemed actually means Um, there's a dictionary definition up there but it's a little bit hard to see it says to gain or regain possession of something in exchange for payment and that's often the language that's been used with regard to slaves if you've become a slave you can be set free for a certain sum of money or you can be bought by someone else and that act of um, uh, being set free for money is is redemption 
Um, we use that word a lot, especially to do with films and stories. But redeeming is really something quite forensic. And it's one of the things that Jesus did for us on the cross. There's a verse there from 1 Peter 1 that explains this. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And that, those verses there at the end of that Isaiah passage. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. The Zion is another name for Jerusalem, and in the New Testament it says that heaven is, can also be called the New Jerusalem, or that's a figurative element to it. So in a way, those who follow Jesus are on this way. It's not an easy way to be on, and it's not as broad as we'd like it. It would be lovely if everybody who was traveling anywhere was on the way of Jesus, but they're not, because Jesus demands that we give him our all uh, when we come to him, and not everybody wants to do that. So the way that he offers it, he, it's sometimes called the narrow way in Jesus' parables. Um, and, um, and this way that is talked about by Isaiah in the desert is really the, the way of following God. Um, but it's a way of joy. It's a way of singing. It's a way of gladness. And he will... Um, watch over us on it.